was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello everyone and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole episode number five. This is the podcast where we discuss James Bond 007. Thanks for joining us. If you're new, then where have you been? Go back to listen to our previous four episodes uh, and then come back to this one. If you're a returning member, then uh, you know the drill by now. Give us a follow on uh, Instagram, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole. Follow us on Twitter, more cubby. Uh, also, feel free to uh, email us if you have any questions or you want us to talk about anything specifically in our upcoming episodes. Now, our last episode, we examined Thunderball and we found that there were lots of uh, interesting areas of discussion. We spoke of the sometimes clumsy but nonetheless groundbreaking action scenes, uh, an obsession with the aquatic, and of course, Phil's disdain for Rick Van Nutter's Felix Leiter. But this week, we take a look at the fifth official installment of Bond. You only live twice. The, uh, the source material of Mike Myers and Robbie Williams' later work, with me to discuss, as always. Firstly, it's the man who's so sophisticated he'll only drink sake at 98.4 degrees Fahrenheit, although he will also happily chug Siamese vodka. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very good. Thank you very much, Martin. Reeling from uh, our slight difference of opinion, I guess, over Thunderball. I think you went in, well, you came out of it very much with the view I went into it with, that it is a little bit baggy around the edges. It's a little bit bloated. It spends a little bit too long underwater. I actually really enjoyed it going back to it. I saw uh, a little bit of the sense of Bond being a detective uh, that was present in Doctor No and from Russia with Love. Uh, so, yeah, that was kind of interesting. I'm, I'm curious to see if we, uh, we fall vaguely in line again on You Only Live Twice or whether we diverge again. I would actually like to make an apology for last week's episode. I made a huge gaffe very early on saying that Largo was uh, number two inspector only to Goldfinger. I, of course, meant Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Goldfinger long gone out of that plane window at this point. I'm very sorry about that one. But it's not as big a mistake as thinking that Rick Van Nutter is less attractive than Czech Linders. Okay, very good. And secondly, he drifted through the years. Life seemed tame until one dream appeared and Judy Dench's M was her name. How are you, Phil? Yes, thank you, Martin. I'm very well, very well. I, I believe there are actually two apologies that I need to issue this week. Firstly, to the Rick Van Nutter fan club who have made their feelings clear on Instagram and Twitter. We ran two polls this week to see who was the preferable Felix Leiter and Rick Van Nutter easily outperformed Chet Linder on both. So I must apologise for my my ill-conceived views that uh, that Chet Linder was the the superior Felix Leiter in that sense and I must also issue an apology to my fiance for for suggesting Judy Dench's M as her preferred Bond girl obviously that was that was a bit of an error at the time so I shall uh, I shall rescind my my suggestion surely it was an even bigger error when you then immediately downgraded her to Miss Moneypenny that was the bit where I thought oh he's in real hot water there it started a bit Freudian, didn't it, when you said M, and then and then it's the, then secretary Moneypenny. I don't know what you're trying to say there, Phil. Like you're you're a man who leaves your woman at home as you go gallivanting around the world making love to other women. Not, 
I'm drawing a line over the whole topic of last week. It was it was an error from start to finish. We could have this as a social media thing. Let us know uh, which Bond uh, actor or actress your significant other would be. That could be a, a little shout out for the uh, the listeners at home. Yeah, that sounds good. And Phil will be vindicated if people choose Judy Dench as M, which they won't. I very much doubt anyone will, but but I live in hope. Okay, so onto the film. You only live twice. Quite uh, an amazing film, this one. And uh, we'll start with, uh, as usual, we'll go over to Adam for the synopsis. And uh, hopefully we'll also hear from Mr. Alan Partridge. I'm sure you will. So You Only Live Twice, the fifth James Bond film based on the 12th James Bond book. Uh, change in the director's chair, Lewis Gilbert, fresh off his success directing Michael Caine in Alfie. Uh, Helms, You Only Live Twice. And Sean Connery returns for the fifth and at the time final um, time as James Bond. Of course, he would be lured back to the role a couple of times afterwards. Uh, released in June 1967, it was still 21 years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! So this cost around the same as Thunderball to make. This was made for $9.5 million and it grows on to gross $111 million. So still a sizable hit, but we are slightly down on what Goldfinger made and quite a way down, 30 million off Thunderball's ultimate total. And this is the first Bond film since Doctor No, which kind of is met with more of a mixed critical reception. So at the time, critics very much split on whether this one was any good or not. Uh, so to learn what actually happens in it, here's over to Alan. Right, you're an overdrill. Gun barrel, Sean Connery, bang, blood dribbles down. A Yankee spacecraft gets swallowed by a silver dildo Thunderbirds reject. Meanwhile, Bond's in Hong Kong, and yes, he's with a lady, and oh my god, he's been shot to death! Q, Nancy Sinatra, volcanoes, Japanese ladies. Bond's death was staged, and he gets literally torpedoed into Tokyo. He can barely sit through two minutes of sumo wrestling before going to see his one-legged camper than a row of tense contact, Mr. Henderson. Here's a vodka martini. That's stirred, not shaken. I hope I got it right. No, he got it wrong, and he gets stabbed extremely quietly. Bond follows the baddie to Asato Chemicals, where they go all Keith Moon on an office and drink some disgusting Siamese vodka. Tiger Tanaka, the Japanese M, is very unimpressed with Bond. My mother told me never to get into cars with strange girls, but you'll get into anything with any girl. But Bond wins him over with his knowledge of Saki served at the correct temperature, 98.4 degrees Fahrenheit, and Tiger treats him to a spa and massage in his private bathhouse in Japan. Men always come first. Women come second. I might just retire here. Disguised as Mr. Fisher, Bond has an early morning champagne with Mr. Asato, an unrealistic dockyard fight with a bunch of sailors, a random tryst with Spectre's new lady killer, all the things I do for England, and an epic aerial battle in Budgie the Little Helicopter. Then we repeat the very first scene, but in Russian. It turns out that Bloody Blofeld's hollowed out a volcano at extraordinary cost complete with lady-eating piranha fish, and he's robbing Yankee and Rusty spaceships to start a war. Even though time's running out, Bond enrolls in Teenage Mutant Ninja School, puts on some dodgy yellow face, and goes underwater in a fishing village with a wife with a fish like a pig. Japanese pigs must be very good looking though, because his wife kisses a total babe. She helps Bond sneak into Mount Spectre, but he comes face to face with Blowers himself. I'm about to inaugurate a little war. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. But Tiger and the 77 Samurai attack. Bond feeds Blower's hunky German masseuse to the piranhas. Bon appetit. 
and stops World War Three by blowing up the big dildo Thunderbird. Blofeld escapes, everything blows up, a British submarine rescues Bond's dinghy, and Miss Moneypenny gets to go and stop him showing Kissy his magic penis. The end. Excellent. Thanks, Adam, for the synopsis. And, uh, of course, Alan with that uh, excellent summary as well. So uh, You Only Live Twice, certainly a very big Bond film. I felt that it wasn't quite as good as Thunderball. Uh, it was a bit too over the top for my taste. But uh, on the other hand, I did enjoy it more when I was watching. Um, so uh, what, where do we start, Phil? Oh, I absolutely love this film. This is, again, this goes back to my childhood you know, it's it just it's such a bonkers plot. Where we look at the ones before, where they were, you know, you could kind of see they were sort of born out of some element of realism. This one is just completely mental. You know, there's there's no sort of staging in kind of real life at all. It's just literally they're going for the space race. They're going for Russia versus America. It's literally just a complete crazed journey from start to finish. But that's why I love it so much. I think this is the first, you know, proper sort of guilty pleasure bond film. Not as perhaps technically honed as the earlier ones, but it's it's just the plot points and the you know the action sequences and the whole setup. Okay, yeah, that's good, Phil. I'd uh, I'd agree with that. I think I really enjoy this film as uh, entertainment value. It's uh, excellent. It's up there as one of the best bonds in terms of uh, entertainment, uh, but maybe not quality. What were your thoughts, Adam? I broadly agree. I think I'm not quite as hot on it as you two. I think the ways in which it's entertaining, some of it is deliberate. I think an awful lot of it probably isn't quite so deliberate. Uh, but you are right in terms of the scale of this one. If Thunderball was epic, this is gargantuan. And again, we see Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman delivering on that promise to make each Bond film bigger and better than the last one. And I think this is probably the apex of that. We've talked a lot about how those initial Bond films invent the modern action film because it's based in what is uh, a palpable reality. It looks like our world, even if it's not played with realism. This one, I think, because of the sci-fi elements of the story, and I think also because of the Japanese setting, it, I think, edges this film a little bit too much into fantasy. And so I think it becomes a little bit too unwieldy a beast to really work as a really great Bond movie. But you are right, it is incredibly funny. They've really recaptured that eye for iconic visual tongue-in-cheek humour in this one that was there in Goldfinger and which was kind of put to one side a little in Thunderball. Connery had a kind of a frosty relationship with the producers at this point. But I feel like it didn't really, it doesn't really come through on the screen. I don't, what were your thoughts on that? I feel like he still gave a decent performance. Mm, I don't know. I would disagree with that, actually. I do think one of the reasons I'm not as enamoured of this one in this original run of six films is because I think Connery looks palpably bored throughout a lot of the running time. And I know that during Thunderball, uh, when they were filming in the Bahamas, he became a little bit annoyed with all the press intrusions into his life and into his private life and his marriage at this point to Diane Salento was also going through a few issues. And in Japan, the press intrusion was really stepped up another notch. They were following him into the toilets at one point. And so I think this really, I think, cements Connery's mind that he's kind of done with the character in the series. Yeah, I heard that there was a Japanese interviewer who asked him, what does it feel like to be James Bond? Because apparently all the Japanese posters specifically said, Sean Connery is James Bond. And uh, Connery's response was, I'm not James Bond, I'm Sean Connery. 
And I think the scale of this film, the huge scale of it, is also something that's working against Connery, because let's not forget, his favourite personal Bond film was From Russia With Love, which is very much the most Cold War-y, the most espionage, thriller-like of all of them. In this one, where there's suddenly loads more gadgets, lots more big action sequences, where he's kind of at the controls of a helicopter, or he's one of a hundred ninjas, or whatever. So there's less emphasis almost on Bond, and more emphasis on everything that's happening around him. So shall we talk about the biggest part of the movie, the biggest set, possibly, or certainly up to now, of the James Bond films, the volcano. So the brilliant set design by Ken Adam. What were your thoughts, Adam, on this? What, how does it compare? I feel like it was even bigger, wasn't it, than the ones we've seen previously? It was like Dr. No's lair on steroids. Ken Adam is, is one of the all-time great production designers. We've seen for his work for Stanley Kubrick. Just how brilliant he is at creating these visually arresting sets which can either be massive or they can be tiny, but they always feature small things in them, which really make them stand out in the mind. We talked a little bit about how he contrasts sets in Thunderball, the Spectre headquarters versus MI6 headquarters, and how the different architectural and design styles of those sets bring out the different atmospheres of those organizations. And this is similar. It's, of course, vast and massive and brilliantly designed to not be cluttered. It's actually quite open, the base, when you, you come into the volcano from it so that it really highlights the rocket and the gantry. And yet he puts things in like a monorail, which is able to ferry people around it easily. He puts in the shutters on the control room. He puts in these secret corridors built into the cliff face. There is a private escape hatch. So there's so much intricacy going on in the set that Ken Adam builds into it to really make it stand out in the mind. But I also think, obviously Roald Dahl, who wrote the screenplay, this is a change in personnel in screenplay writing, and it's the first time they really go off-piste in terms of not following the novels anymore. And so a lot of the imagination and the craziness of this film must have come from the pen of Roald Dahl, who, of course, is one of the most imaginative and eccentric of, of writers anyway. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Adam. I think that um, when they were actually originally looking at the, the locations for it, they did want to try and follow the, um, the original idea in the book. Obviously, Fleming wrote that he wanted a castle on the cliffs. The trouble was... A lot of the um, the buildings in Japan, they don't actually build anywhere near the sea just because of the threat of um, typhoons. So although it says that in the book, they, when they looked at it following that, they, they saw it was probably not going to be feasible and wouldn't have been sort of realistic for them to do that. So that was why they went for the volcano idea. And the fact that they built one that was a real life-size floor with the actors and then built a model one so that they could incorporate the explosions. So obviously the, the amount of sets they had to build just to be able to film those sequences is quite astonishing as well. We should also bear in mind that two months prior to this, Casino Royale is released. Not the Daniel Craig one, the first spoof version uh, that was launched as a kind of Bond rival. And it does okay. But part of how why this film is so big is surely also a response to knowing that another Bond film is coming out and it has an even bigger budget than this one. They made it for $12 million. Uh, and, and perhaps feeling like they have to assert themselves as still the Bond series, the biggest and the best. Would have been interesting if it had been a Daniel Craig one. You only live twice, you haven't been born yet. This is actually a big co-production with one of Japan's major film studios, Toho which are famous in the wider cinema world for two things. A, Akira Kurosawa's great samurai 
films from the 1950s and onwards, but also the Godzilla franchise, and indeed uh, the actresses Akiko Wakabayashi and uh, Mia Hama, who play the two leading Bond women in this film, were both regular actresses in the Godzilla movies. I'd have preferred it if Blofeld had like Godzilla as a pet or something, rather than the cat. I think in, in a big fantasy world, when Blofeld's escaping and he pulls the big lever at the end, instead of erupting the whole volcano base, just a big cage comes up, like in Return of the Jedi, and Godzilla just comes out. I think that would have been more realistic than the scenes we actually get at the end of those dreadful kind of stock images of a volcano erupting that's clearly not anything at all related to the base we've just seen. I love also the idea that if a volcano were really erupting, the proximity of all these swimming ninjas away from it would have been such that the fumes spewed out from it, which we know killed most people when Pompeii and Herculaneum went under, wouldn't have had any effect on them whatsoever. They'd have been fine because, you know, they're far enough away from the lava floating off in these dinghies. So shall we move on to the, the baddie, Spectre number one, not Goldfinger. Of course, it's Phil's dad. We have Blofeld. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Of all the villains to give him, just Ernst Stavro Blofeld. In, in his defence, can I just say, Blofeld for me in this, particularly Donald Pleasant's portrayal of this, I was going to come on to this a little bit later, but Donald Pleasant's portrayal of Blofeld is the, for me, is the ultimate Bond villain. You know, he's, he's the most recognisable, he's the most memorable. For me, he defines Bond villains, not just for this era, but for the whole franchise for me. I know, again, I know he's been parodied and it's kind of, it's become a cliche in itself, but... For me, he is the best of the breed. Uh, I do agree. Obviously, he's visually iconic. When you think of Ernst Stavro Blofeld, this is the Blofeld that you think of. I'm just not entirely sure it's as effective a performance as my favourite Blofeld, which is actually the very first Blofeld, the one that we saw in From Russia With Love and Thunderball. I think he's more frightening when he's kept in shadow, when he's this calm, measured voice, when you don't know what he looks like, when all you have is the suit and the stroking the cat. I think when you've got this great master criminal, the mystery of the character is what makes them powerful and what makes them scary. I see what you're saying there, Adam, but I'd, I'd probably side with Phil on this one. I, I enjoyed Donald Pleasant's performance. I enjoyed the physicality of it. I enjoyed, and actually I enjoyed his voice as well, which is really weird. Even though he's born in Worksop, very close to our hometown. Uh, so maybe I feel some affinity. Some of our listeners have been wondering where I'm from with my weird voice. And uh, so that I feel like there's some connection there with, <laughs> with Donald Pleasant. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you, Martin. I think his, his delivery of the character makes it, because Adam, I know you've mentioned that obviously when, when Blofeld is in shadow in the earlier films, it, there is kind of more of that sinister element. But I think that Donald Pleasant brings a menace to it. And I think in his, in his voice as well, it's, you know, it, it makes you really, really on edge. I'm just, I'm just not buying the argument that, that he is intimidating and that he is scary in this one. I think the only thing scary is, is the, the scar down the eye, which is, of course, a makeup effect. Is, do you really think his voice is as menacing as the voice of Eric Pohl dubbing Blofeld in From Russia With Love and Thunderbolt? I find that really clipped, incredibly calm at all times, you know, British sort of, you know, almost warm and honeyed voice, but really sinister underneath it where you never see the face. I find that much more frightening and menacing. I just think that character is better when he is in shadow. I think once you bring Blofeld into the action, it starts looking a little bit ridiculous. A 
there is a there is a fun fact going to WWE. The henchman that he fights at Osato Chemicals is actually the grandfather of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. He's a um, he was a Samoan wrestler, now a retired wrestler, also. But yes, he's the grandfather of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I didn't know that at all. That's amazing. So Sean Connery could just like meet the Rock at some point and just go, "I boot up your granddad, and I boot up you." But yeah, no, I, I didn't know that myself, but I found out in my uh, my research for the film that it is The Rock's granddad. I think my favourite part of that scene is the fact that uh, The Rock's granddad doesn't realise that Sean Connery. It's a bit like going back to Dr. No when Connery was disguised as Chang. Now he's pretending to be a short Japanese ninja and The Rock's granddad lifts him up, carries him to the top of Asata Tower and doesn't realise until the face mask, the tiny face mask, is peeled away. Uh, so I thought that was unrealistic, but uh, a funny plot point. Yeah, it is true that the height doesn't give him away yet again. It's a fantastic fight sequence, isn't it? I mean, the fact that everything is just sort of getting smashed to bits. You know, the fact that he WWE style picks up a massive sofa and starts bashing The Rock's granddad with it. I noticed it was really sturdy furniture as well. Like they didn't get that from Ikea. Those sofas stay intact even when they're being thrown around the room. Oh, yeah, that's, that's Japanese engineering for you. That's, uh, they're built to last, those things are. The Rock's granddad also is terrible with that samurai sword. He's over Bond. Bond's on the floor. He's got a sword, and he just keeps swishing either side of him in a way that lets Bond just kind of roll very easily out of the way of it. Can we do this? Can, can someone get this on social media in front of The Rock? Because I think, as Bond fans, we are calling The Rock's granddad a wuss. We're saying The Rock's granddad is rubbish. And if you, Mr. The Rock Johnson, or whatever your name is, think that you're actually hard and can take us on, why don't, why don't you come and bring it, yeah? Your granddad wasn't big enough for Bond fans, and neither are you, Mr. Dwayne The Rock, Mr. Johnson Man Rock. But if you want I've to come on as a guest, then feel free. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually The Rock's really good. Should we talk, as we're on that fight scene, should we talk more generally about the action sequences in this, and particularly the two which I think still stand up as highlights in the series, which is firstly, of course, the big volcano battle at the end. Goldfinger and the assault on Fort Knox aside, this is the first major battle sequence involving hundreds of extras that we've seen, and I think it's still one of the best and most exciting. Uh, the choreography of it is fantastic. The fact that at the ninja school we see the guy who's the expert swordsman taking out in practice a load of people with like, you know, single-handedly. And then we cut to him in the middle of the volcano and they're all running up to the same guy with guns, but he's just laying them all out with a sword in virtually precisely the same routine. There are so many little touches like that that make it such a brilliant action sequence. And also, of course, Little Nelly, the aerial combat sequence. That still, I, I was astonished at how well that cut together. There's a little bit of thunderbirdiness when some of the helicopters explode. I mean, they are obviously models, but the actual cutting together and shooting of the aerial action sequences, I thought was extraordinarily good. Yeah, we'll come to Little Nelly in a little while for the, the cars and the gadget sequence, because it is quite an interesting story behind it. But yeah, no, I would agree with you, Adam. The action sequences in this, again, ramp it up a lot more from the previous films. And it's possibly... Um, you know, prophetic, the fact that, um, you know, future films, things like Moonraker and even Tomorrow Never Dies kind of followed the same blueprint of how this film is set up because obviously it builds up to the villain and their big plan. And then it all culminates in a big fight sequence at the very end, you know, where you've got multiple action sequences all coming together. And the other thing as well, the fact that how many henchmen does Blofeld need? I mean, the amount of opportunities they have to, to offload Bond 
and they're all terrible. You know, they could have just shot him at a sort of chemicals and be done with it. And the fact that they're the clumsiest henchmen I think we've seen of any of the films so far. And Bond's a lot more um, willy-nilly in terms of offing henchmen in this film, quite noticeably. He only really, in the previous films, kills when he's got absolutely no choice or his life's endangered. In this one, he's kind of just shooting everyone just for coming near him, particularly at the dockyard. There's one guy coming down some steps and he just shoots him. Everyone on the roof, he's got a big bamboo pole and he's taking them out five at a time. Yeah, I noticed Bond kind of turns into a Superman, action man character here, doesn't he? And it's maybe I wonder whether that's why Connery did get a bit bored of the character. He noticed it was veering off into very unrealistic scenes rather than the epic fistfight that we had him from Russia with Love. Uh, because in this one, Bond just needs one shot, doesn't he, to kill everyone. Whereas they're, they're the worst shooters in the world, Asata and his henchmen. Yeah, absolutely. I think I definitely sense that from Connery. On board Connery, do you think there is a single moment of him looking more bored than at the wedding to uh, Kisi Suzuki? The look of utter fed-up disgruntlement on his face during that whole ceremony. And part of it is obviously he thinks that he's marrying someone with a face like a pig in Tiger's Woods, which is pretty harsh anyway from Bond. You know, this is all about the mission and, and you're just getting grumpy because your wife isn't going to be that good-looking that you've got to stay with for two days or however much it is. But there's almost something more to it than that. There, that is almost the scene when they've made Connery stand out in the sun on a mountainside in Japan all day. And you can almost sense he's properly fed up and miserable at this point. Might be partly because the scene seems redundant to the storyline, doesn't it? There's no reason, other than showing Japan and its culture to the Western world, there's not really any necessity for those scenes, I don't think, is there? Yeah, you can kind of tell that he just wants to be on the flight home by that point. He, by the end of the film, you can sort of see it in his face. He's, he's really not wanting to be there. While we're at um, Bond's wedding, and I put wedding in very, very strong quotation marks to Kishi Suzuki, should we talk about the, uh, the women in this Bond film? Which, after Thunderball, for me, was a major disappointment. I felt like the two lead female characters in Thunderball were a huge step forward in terms of how complex and individual and dynamic they were. In this one, we do get a step forward in that we talked last week about Paula, um, the Bahamas contact, being a female member of the intelligence services who's underserved. Now we get two members of the Japanese intelligence services who are obviously, again, very bright and resourceful uh, and, you know, able to handle themselves in the action characters. And yet I feel both of them are very underserved by their roles in the storyline. Uh, what did you guys think about that? So I, I would maintain that Kissy Suzuki's character, I think she is actually quite a good Bond girl, principally because of the fact that she does actually help Bond when he needs it most. She manages to get back to Tiger Tanaka. And can I just point out, Tiger Tanaka is a great ally to Bond. I think he's one of the very best of the entire series. But now I'd, I'd suggest that the, the Bond girls in this one do actually, with the exception of Helga Brandt, they do assist Bond and they do do more for the film. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I think I, I really enjoyed Aki's performance, actually. I felt like there were some... We've mentioned that Connery's possibly getting bored with the character by this point, but I think there was a little bit of a spark there between Aki and James Bond in the in the story, and I, I quite enjoyed that. I do agree, actually. That's a very good point. I think, you know, Bond and Aki clearly have a very sparky, interesting relationship. And again, it's, it's one of those great moments of acting from Connery that he's genuinely, absolutely distraught when she takes the poison for him. But they're just both undermined. Like, he, he makes the comment about, oh, Aku's very intelligent and resourceful. 
But then she just pretty much runs away from every other fight, you know, until she gets off. And it's the same with Kissy. We have that moment when she says, I'm, I'm not interested in your charms. I'm here for business. I am an agent. He says, oh, do you think you can make your way up this mountain? Yes, of course, it's business. And then the very next scene after a few montage clips of them walking up, it is, oh, sorry, do you mind if I have a sit down? I'm like, why have you done that? What, would it have been so hard just to have, have her carry, have the energy and the stamina that she originally said she had and let her get all the way up the mountain? Although I think you're being unfair there on Kissy because that seemed like a massive hike up that mountain. And I was a bit confused by the timing as well. It takes them, it seems to take them the whole day to get up the, up to the volcano edge. And then suddenly it's nighttime when they get down to the bottom. <laughs> Oh, that is true, yeah. To Kissy's credit, yeah, it takes all day to get up the mountain. And then she's sort of swimming back down at the bottom about five minutes later. And then 10 minutes after that, she's come all the way back up, having rounded up Tiger and the 77 Samurai. So, yeah, maybe she was just putting it on. Maybe she was saving her strength. And I've just misread that scene. In terms of Aki, I really liked, even though I enjoyed her character when she was alive, I think the death scene really stands out for me uh, in being really suspenseful and a good way of utilizing the Japanese culture, the way that the ninja climbs in through the, uh, the Japanese style architecture of the roof and then tries to use the poison through the, uh, the string. Uh, and apparently that was a real method as well. Apparently a 16th century Japanese warlord, his life was uh, attempted in that way. Almost like a sniper style of, of execution. So it's a very, very clever way to do it. And it's, you know, it's not, the audience probably wouldn't be expecting it at that point as well. Yeah, Martin, you are right. That is a fantastic scene when Aki's killed. The photography of it as well, the fact that you can see the glistening drops of poison as they come down the string and John Barry's score, which is very quiet at that moment, but very ominous. It really brings that scene together in, in quite a brilliant way. John Barry's music is fantastic throughout all of this. It's such a lush score for this one with those sort of Asian and Japanese musical elements kind of entwined into it. I think the music's phenomenal in this. Uh, I just want to go back to what Phil was saying about Tiger, which I completely agree. He's a, he's a fantastic Bond ally, the best since Kerim Bay. Uh, and again, he falls into, I think, the, the major thing that all great Bond allies have, which is that they are effectively a little bit like Bond himself, just a little bit older and from different countries. So... You know, he's almost like Japan's version of Bond, but probably 10, 15 years later when he's, you know, gotten to the, the head of the Secret Service. Uh, on the subject of um, uh, women getting quite shoddy treatment in, in this film at Bond's hands, should we go all full circle back to the opening scene and the staged death? I'm really upset she never got the chance to cook that, that uh, Peking duck for him because she says it's the best in Hong Kong. You know, that, that's something worth sticking around for. I'm, not, I'm never entirely certain how the logistics of that staged death work. Like, who in that scene is in on it and who isn't? Why is there fake blood in the bed? Like, how long does Connery have to pretend to be dead for to then get onto the submarine in the big mummified bat. I mean, how many people are in on that? I've always been very confused as to what's going on with that whole thing. Yeah, you'd imagine, because obviously the Hong Kong police arrive and obviously they've got the mix of the British military police as well. So you'd imagine that they probably weren't in on it. They were probably, um, you know, they were under the impression that Bond was dead and it was only the Secret Service, very few numbers, so probably M and Moneypenny were the only ones to know that Bond had, had been, you know, faked his own death. 
Interesting to note, obviously, we mentioned Bond's love interest in the very opening scene was an actress called Sai Chin, who actually makes another return cameo appearance in Casino Royale in 2006 in Daniel Craig's portrayal of it. Um, so she kind of comes full circle as well. So it's quite interesting that they bring her back. But sadly, she doesn't cook any food in that film either. So uh, we're not um, able to see any of her duck either. Well, uh... <laughs> that sounded really weirdly like an innuendo, didn't it? I've got one last thing to say before we can move on, which is um, sort of Bond losing his marbles a bit in the volcano lair. Could someone explain to me why on earth it's Bond who decides to disguise himself as an astronaut to get on the rocket when he's just set free two actual astronauts who can clearly beat people up because we've just seen them do it? Isn't it more useful to put an actual person onto the rocket who can pilot it, beat up the other Spectre guy who's in there and just steer it back home? Surely then there's no need for the massive loss of life and huge insurance claims Spectre are filing on that erupted volcano layer that comes afterwards. This is an oversight from Bond, isn't it? Perhaps. It's also telling that it makes a quite a naive error because obviously he gets caught by Blofeld. Is it his radiator or his cooling unit? He tries to take him yeah, his to the actual... Yeah, which is obviously, which as Blofeld mentions, a real astronaut wouldn't have done that. So it's, it kind of gives him away. So it's kind of what was the point of trying to risk that anyway? Particularly because then the spacecraft gets blown up at the very end as well. So the fact that Bond would have literally been killed. So he, he literally almost knows he's... It's kind of a suicide mission because Blofeld's already given the command to blow the the spacecraft up. Yeah, I was thinking about this. What was his plan if he'd have got onto the spacecraft? Because <laughs> as you mentioned, Phil, he's just going to get blown up by Blofeld if he's on there. So what was the plan? And also, the I think he frees three astronauts and suddenly that goes down to two. So what, I wonder what the other guy, does he just bugger off? Or was he a Russian astronaut and in classic Russian uh, sort of cooperation at this point in time was like, well, you know, this is American-British problem. I want nothing to do with this. You know, I was, I was just astronaut and now I'm captured by a big silver dildo rocket and now I'm in Japan in some strange volcano. I, I, I want nothing to do with this. Some people want nothing to do with this. That was a deleted, actual deleted scene, that. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? <laughs> I've never done that before! Neither have I, actually. Okay, so our next segment it looks at the cars and gadgets of the film. So uh, what did we have this week, Phil? Yes, thanks very much, Martin. So we get a bit more of a, a mix of vehicles this week. Obviously, talk, going back to sort of Thunderball and Goldfinger, we had quite a European influence um, in those films. Obviously, this time out, we're in Japan, so there's quite a lot of influence from the sort of Japanese car manufacturers, and we see quite a wide variety of different models. It's quite interesting to note that, obviously, at this kind of point in time, kind of Japanese industry is on the rise, so it's, it's we're out of post-war we're starting to see, you know, a lot of industrial elements to it. And the car manufacturers are kind of leading this this rise. So they're wanting to try and get more international publicity and to try and to try and build their own presence, particularly in Europe and America. So this is where we where it's quite an interesting step that obviously um the kind of title card that's used is the Toyota. Um so it's the Toyota two thousand GT, quite a step away from what we've um what we would have expected before. So it's kind of Toyota trying to show that they can build sports cars and build quite exciting cars 
that are interesting to, to more mass market um, buyers. Um, interesting story that um, is often, well, not many people know, but um, basically when Toyota first got the rights to be able to supply the car to the Bond franchise, um, when Sean Connery, they initially supplied a hard top coupe, um, and we've mentioned Sean Connery is six foot two, so when he tried to get in it, he couldn't fit at all. He couldn't even get into the passenger seat. Um, so basically, the producer said, "You know, this won't do. We need to have, you know, Bond has to be able to be in the car, or uh, you know, for all the scenes. There wasn't the option of a stuntman or anything like that. So they went to Toyota and they basically said, "Can you redesign this car so that it will, you know, that Bond will be able to fit in and be able to to shoot the scenes?" So basically, the the entire scene, it was the entire shoot was basically done with a car with no roof. And Toyota managed to redesign the entire car within the three-week period. With, I think it was with a couple of days to spare, and they just basically sent it straight to the chute. A lot of the design philosophy from the car actually comes from the Jaguar E-Type as well. You probably notice it's got quite swooping lines. It's quite an elegant shape. Um, and a lot of that was down to the fact of a lot of the Japanese car manufacturers at this time, for a long time after it, were following kind of European influence in their car design. And it does look like a really elegant kind of European sports car. This kind of takes over the DB5's mantle and then moves it on. So this is a lot more modern in terms of its design and its layout. The other vehicle that kind of everybody remembers from UN Live Twice is, of course, Little Nelly, the um, the weaponized gyrocopter that Bond uses for his um, reconnaissance mission around the, um, the islands and obviously when he gets um, embroiled in the chase with the helicopters. Now, the... Design itself was based on a real gyrocopter that had been built by a former wing commander and inventor called K.H. Wallace. And Wallace is the man who actually flies Little Nelly in the film. So you see that astonishing point where it goes off the, the runway and then it just launches up into a really high trajectory up into the sky. And it was Wallace who was tasked with flying it because nobody else really was able to do it. It's interesting to note that it's only really Little Nelly that um, Q brings to this film. Also, we see in Thunderbolt and Goldfinger, he's got a lot more gadgets that he brings along. Whereas in this one, it's actually Tiger that's helping him with more of the um, more of the weaponry. So that actually helps him a lot more. Um, and obviously, these do come into their own later on into the film in the volcano scene, where also he uses the rocket cigarette to blow up the um, the control room, and and that kind of causes the diversion needed to get the ninjas into the um, into the volcano. You say that Little Nelly is the only thing Q brings to this film. He does, once again, following his blue pineapple Hawaiian shirt in Thunderball, bring an excellent costume choice, namely an extremely sweaty-looking uh, set of khaki pants and T-shirt. Yeah, I must admit, the shorts round his sort of midriff are quite entertaining as well. How high are those shorts? It's unclear where the suction cups come from that he uses, or the suction pads for the volcano. I wonder if they, those come from Q again, and he's saying, now if you do find yourself in a hidden volcano, then these will help you climb down the wall. Or maybe the plumbing in uh, Kissy's fishing village is just really horrendous, and so everyone kind of carries four toilet plungers with them at all times, just in case of an emergency. Why don't you acquaint yourself with the manual? You should be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. We've spoken a little bit about Roald Dahl being the screenplay writer, but what did we have for the uh, the book? So, uh, by the book, 007. Yeah, so You Only Live Twice the Novel. This is the last one published in Fleming's lifetime. And as we've alluded to, this is the first time that the films really take quite a radical departure from the novel. Roald Dahl, as the screenwriter, was given a lot of license 
uh, to adapt the book and completely change it. And part of that is because in the context of the novels, this is the third in the Blofeld trilogy. He's introduced in Thunderball, and then in the books we go straight to Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and then You Only Live Twice comes in. So at this point, Bond is very much a broken man and completely distraught after the death of his wife, Tracy, uh, just after their wedding ceremony at Blofeld's hands. So at the start of the novel, Bond is gambling, he's drinking heavily, he's making mistake on assignments. And so M actually strips him of double O status and um, reinvents him as a diplomatic agent who is sent on a mission to Japan to try and get intelligence about Soviet communications from Tiger Tanaka. From there on in, we go a little bit more closely towards the structure of the film. Uh, he meets Dicko Henderson, an Australian in the novel, who shows him a little bit around Tokyo, teaches him a little bit of Japanese culture. And then he is led towards Tiger Tanaka, who in this is much less helpful than he is in the film. He doesn't give Bond the information he wants, but instead says, as a former double O, I'm going to dispatch you to a garden of death. And this is a very embarrassing castle fortress that sprung up in Japan. Uh, patrolled by a mysterious gentleman called Shatterhand, who uh, has created a Japanese suicide forest, sadly still something that is, exists in uh, modern-day Japan. Um, unknown to Tanaka, but known to Bond when he sees the images of Shatterhand, is that it is, of course, secretly Blofeld himself. So Bond keeps this to himself, and, as in the film, is married to Kitty Suzuki, is transformed into a local, in order that he can infiltrate uh, the Garden of Death which he does so and uh, meets Blofeld, disguised as a samurai, whom he duels and eventually is able to take his revenge upon. Bond very specifically kills Blofeld in You Only Live Twice. However, in his escape, he is knocked out by a blow and is given amnesia. And so the title You Only Live Twice comes from the fact that at the end of the book, everyone in Britain thinks that Bond is dead because he's forgotten everything who he is. And he's made Kissy Suzuki pregnant, who has therefore decided to try and convince him that he is actually a Japanese fisherman. At the very end of the novel, he suspects that that's not actually what his past is, and he abandons Kissy to go into Russia, which ultimately creates the circumstances for his reintegration as a double-O agent in the very last James Bond novel, The Man with the Golden Gun. The other interesting thing to say about this one is that this is the first novel that Fleming writes post-Doctor No, or after uh, the filming of Doctor No begins. And so in Bond's obituary, this is where Bond's Scottish ancestry is created, in the novels as a way of explaining why at that point the very typically English secret agent James Bond is suddenly played by the very Scottish Sean Connery in the films. But that is You Only Live Twice. It's very much the license to kill, I guess, of the novels. It's a broken, grieving, distraught Bond ultimately sent on a mission of vengeance following the death of his wife. Yeah, I feel it would have been a very different film if they had have gone closely with the book. But I see why it was kind of impossible, wasn't it? It was impossible for the film to do that, having not yet made on A Majesty's Secret Service. And this is the weird thing about this book, in that I feel the film series has tried to do this book in spirit with Bond as this distraught agent a couple of times. Licensed to kill when it's not his wife, but of course Felix Leiter's wife, who is murdered by the villain, is probably the closest they get to it. Quantum of Solace, they try the same thing following the death of Vesper Lind. Not really to the same degree of success in my mind, but that's for a future episode, of course. Okay, very good. And we move on now to the section that's not okay anymore. So this section is where we look at the non-PC areas of the film and, well, where do we start? Where do we start with this film? We've spoken about some of the things already, I guess. I suppose it's a good thing 
that the film is introducing Japan and its culture to the Western audiences. And as we've mentioned specifically at that time in the 60s, it was even more of a, an exotic mystery. Uh, so I guess that's a good, it's got the intentions are there, but the execution is sadly quite poor in many areas. Firstly, we could talk, well, actually moving away from Japan, the, the beginning of the film we have in Hong Kong with the Chinese woman Ling. So the whole dialogue there we've discussed is quite out of order. I don't know if we need to go back into that. Yeah, the line specifically about um, the relative tastes, I guess, of girls around the world. Shall we allude to it in that way? Uh, Yeah, or you cringe hearing that now, don't you? Pretty appalling from Bond. And then, of course, when we do get to Japan, we have the interactions with Tanaka, we said, is a very friendly, lovable character, but uh, possibly displaying some of the... Well, I guess they are realities of Japanese culture. It's a very patriarchal society even now. So I guess it is true, but uh, Bond's reactions are not what we would like to see, I guess, nowadays. I like, well, I like to think they, they did it as a sort of tongue-in-cheek style um, portrayal at the time, and it, it wasn't meant with any sort of malice. But yeah, there are elements that are that obviously we can see are problematic. Yeah, I guess that's the big one, Phil, the, the way that they transform Connery's face with the eyepieces and wig. Personally, I would have liked to see when they are transforming him, they should have said, well, you've already got the wig. We just need to do the, uh, the eyepieces. <laughs> that would have been a better way of dealing with it, I think. It's almost like they tried to ask somebody what a Japanese person looks like down the phone. They didn't even get somebody to advise them. They just went, right, we've got 20 minutes to do this scene. Tell us how to do it. Connery's Japanese fisherman looks a bit like Mr. Spock. Which is weird that you get a Star Trek and then Mr. Spock is the one you pick out to try and turn someone into what a Japanese man looks like when sat near him is Hikaru Sulu, uh, who actually is Japanese in Star Trek. That's probably the one they should have modelled him on if they were going to go down that route. Yeah, and of course we get the description of Kissy as well as a woman who has a face like a pig. That doesn't sit well with me at all, really. And then when they are doing the marriage scene and they get the procession of the women coming along. I feel it's another really uncomfortable scene. I think it's played for less, isn't it? It's supposed to be a jokey scene where they're looking at these older Japanese women coming past and Bond's wondering, oh, is that the one? Is that the ugly pig that I'm going to have to marry? And then we eventually get Kissy. But the whole, it's played out in such a, an uncomfortable way. I thought, what did you think to that one? Do we wonder, based on... Because Tiger's the one who says, oh, she has a face like a pig. And then, of course, Kissy Suzuki manifestly whatever you think of you know that way of phrasing it is an incredibly attractive uh, young woman do we think there's perhaps an element of tiger trolling james bond at this point because he know because he knows that he's going to marry into her and he knows that she's actually really attractive so is he playing on like you said earlier you'll get into anything with any girl you should stop following strange women around is it tiger actually subtly critiquing bond's sexism by saying this line to him to get him all riled up and frustrated. I wonder if there's an element of that going on, thinking about it again. It's still absolutely inappropriate, but maybe it's not all Tiger's fault. Maybe this is all on Bond and his attitude to him. Yeah, that might make the scene a bit more... Like, it makes sense, doesn't it, then, that they are joking as the older, uglier women confessed. Yeah, it's a huge practical joke he's playing on Bond. My friend, now you take your first civilised bath. Really? Well, I like the plumbing. Place yourself entirely in their hands, my dear Bond son. Rule number one is never do anything for yourself when someone else can do it for you. And number two? Rule number two, in Japan, men always come first. 
women come second. I might just retire to here. My one problem with the bathhouse scene is I've been to Japanese bathhouses, and A, the sexes are kept separate, and B, you're naked in them. You can quite clearly see that Sean Connery, you know, is wearing some trunks underneath, uh, you know, via the rock pool that he's in. So just unrealistic, you know, not representative of Japanese culture more than anything else. And of course, that scene does give us part of our introduction song as well with the uh, bird never. I'm sure that's not a Japanese proverb. Somebody, any Japanese listeners, please do let us know uh, about that proverb. Old Japanese proverb say, bird never make nest in bare tree. Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly sure it isn't one, but uh, I, I, you know, I can stand to be corrected. So, yeah, I think that's uh, about covered the, the main areas of uh, what we might not consider particularly politically correct nowadays. So Thunderball was kind of hung up and fascinated with the aquatic, uh, whereas this film is very fascinated with the Japanese culture and does an OK job at portraying some aspects, but certainly lots of room for improvement. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Okay, so we come to our final segment, which is the quiz. So I have the honours this week. I'm looking forward to what song either Adam or Phil will choose at the end. So a simple setup for this week. Three questions for each of you. We'll take it in turns, penalty shootout style. And there'll be a, a tiebreak question if you, uh, if you are still level at the end of those three. Phil? You're up first. So question number one. Friend of the show, Bert Kwok, appears in this film, helping with the Tenoy announcements in the volcano base. His character name is never mentioned, uh, but in the credits, it's revealed that he is Spectre number three or four. So 50-50 for question number one. I'm going to say number four, because he can't be number three, surely. Unfortunately, he is Spectre number three, Phil, Bert Kwok. Spectre number four is the guy sitting next to him, played by Michael Chan, who interestingly is the real-life brother of the woman who plays Ling, the Chinese woman at the beginning of the film. So uh, yeah, Spectre number four was Michael Chan, Spectre number three was Burt Kwok. So uh, nothing for you there, unfortunately, Phil. So over to you, Adam. Uh, so question number one, we briefly meet Mr. Dicko Henderson in this film, as, again, as we've mentioned, who Bond remains suspicious of until he tests to check for the missing leg. Which leg is missing? Is it the right or the left? So remembering the scene back, I think it's his right leg. Correct, it is his right leg that is missing. So well done, Adam, you're 1-0 up. Back to you, Phil, for question number two. Bond never really shows off his first in Oriental languages that he claims to have from Cambridge, mustering only a few words of Japanese throughout the film. Which of these does he not say? Arigato, which means thank you. Konbawa, which means good evening. Or sumimasen, which means excuse me. Which of those phrases does he not utter in You Only Live Twice? Um, I'd probably say the last one. Is it sunyasen? So if I've pronounce that incorrectly but the last option yeah that is correct phil well done so he does say adagato and he does say kambawa but he's uh he doesn't say excuse me he's not a he's not too polite i wouldn't have thought he would have been to be honest okay so one one but uh, adam with the extra question uh, so over to adam for question number two uh, at the beginning of the film, Bond's stage sea burial is observed by a weird-looking guy with binoculars. The newspaper on the table in front of him reads that the British naval commander has been murdered. But what's the name of the Hong Kong newspaper? Is it A, South China Morning Post, 
B, The Standard, or C, Singpao Daily? From memory, I think it was a British paper, so I don't know for definite, but I'm going to say The Standard. That is correct. Well done, Adam. You're two on up. The standard newspaper of Hong Kong, the, the free newspaper, so it was a weird and cheap guy. So over to Phil for your final question. So Bond poses as a director of Empire Chemicals in his first meeting with Asata. Bond explains the previous director died falling into a pulverizer at the works. Uh, what's the name of this deceased director? Is it Williamson, Madison, or Patterson? I'm sure it's Williamson, isn't it? It is Williamson. Well done, Phil. You've drawn it level. So it's over to Adam for the win. Question number three, Adam. In the pre-title sequence, we see NASA spacecraft Jupiter-16 swallowed by Spectre spacecraft. Uh, But what's the name of the astronaut whose lifeline is cut and who is left to drift in the vastness of space for all eternity? Is it Dave, Jack, or Chris? I don't know that at all. Um... I'm going to have to guess Dave. Unfortunately, it was Chris. So uh, two each for you on the questions. I thought I remember someone saying Dave. <laughs> hey, get inside, Dave. It's another spacecraft. Get inside, Dave. I can't remember who the, the name of the, the one who survives is, so he might have been a Dave. Okay, so you're level there after three questions, two each. So we go to the tiebreaker question. In the opening scenes of the film, Bond is in Hong Kong with Ling, who as I've mentioned, is also the real-life sister of Michael Chan, Spectre Number 4. She made her return to the Bond franchise in Casino Royale, sitting next to Daniel Craig's Bond as he takes on the Chifra. The question is, how old is the actress when she makes her return to Casino Royale? And the closest age will win. Okay, you ready, Phil? Yep, I think I might have actually gone too old, but I've said 76 on 76 okay i've got a lot that's meant to say 61 her actual age so she was 34 years old and you only live twice 1967 so she was 73 you were very close phil well done yeah that that was that was pure luck that was because i just based on the fact she looked quite old in the film so okay well done phil so actually firstly adam what were your you said that you had some great choices what were you going to choose well probably the best is in win in honor of um Sean Connery's epic and very realistic transformation into a Japanese fisherman, I was going to go for turning Japanese by the vapours. <laughs> well, in fact, it's interesting you should mention that, Adam, because I was thinking of that one as well. So in, in the spirit of goodwill and um, honour, shall I, shall I pass it as a joint win to say that we, we should still have the vapours and turning Japanese? Because it's, it seems to suit the film quite well, actually. Yeah, it's a very suitable choice, I think, to end the episode. So uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us for episode number five. That was You Only Live Twice. Roger Moore's Cubbyhole will be back next week, episode number six, with On Her Majesty's Secret Service. As usual, you can go over to our social media page where we are quite active. If you want to join in with some quiz questions over there, uh, give us a like and follow on the social media. But uh, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I was Martin. I was Adam. Sayonara. And I was Phil, looking forward to next week. I got your picture, I got your picture, I'd like a million of your aura myself. I want a doctor to take a picture, so I can look at you from inside as well. You got me turning up and turning down, I'm turning in, I'm turning right, I'm turning Japanese, I think I'm turning Japanese, I really think so.
ping 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 there's no way this is staying ping 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 so just this should be the outro music ping ping